Turn in your Bibles, please, to book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read it two places from the book of Revelation. I mentioned this last week, at least I think I did. The seven churches to in Asia Minor, um, chapter 2, chapter 3. Two of them don't receive a rebuke. Uh, Philadelphia, for sure. I think Smyrna as well don't, doesn't receive correction. Just condemnation. I've been working through these. Um, I've been working through the book of Revelation in my... Um, family worship with my wife and I'm going to apply some things that we see here and then our sermon passage will be uh, Psalm 129 but let, let's see what will we look at Revelation 2 let me read let me read that to the church at Smyrna 8 through 11 and I want to get at a truth that I hope to unpack from the Psalms here Revelation 2 verse 8 here the holy and the perfect word of our holy and perfect God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear about what you are to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And what I want us to consider as we're going forward is the the preservation of God's people by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the face of suffering. So no amount of suffering or persecution can take any lover of Christ away from Christ. Revelation 3 Let's see. Um, again, the, the other church that didn't receive a correction. This is Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the idea that I want us to see is the preservation of God's people um, by Christ. Psalm 129, please. There we are. Verse 1. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. 
May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are that you are God and we are not. How thankful, Almighty God, that not only are you our creator and sustainer, governor, that you are our redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are your beloved children. And we ask, Almighty God, that we would grow tonight in our confidence that no matter what occurs in this life, um, nothing can separate us from your love, Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. No one can snatch us out of your hand, Heavenly Father, nor your hand, Lord Jesus Christ. No one can expel you, Holy Spirit, from the soul of one believer. Give us great peace to live in this uh, world at war. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were here, I think it was last week, if you were here last week, I've decided in the midst of our Ezekiel series to take a little bit of a break, tiny breaks, maybe three or four weeks off. And because specifically we've been looking at judgment passages, which can be, um, which can be hard to receive. And so what I've done is taken a couple weeks, and as is my custom when I take a break, break I go to the Proverbs or the Psalms, mainly the Psalms. And this is Martin Luther's practice. When you run out of things to pray for, one of the best methods that I know of many men that have done this is you open up the book of um, Psalms and pray through them. Appropriate those words as your words. The book of Psalms is the experience of the believer. And sometimes there, it's said, the Psalm of David or the Psalm of Asaph, like Psalm 73, the sons of Asaph, or the Psalm of uh, Moses, Psalm 90, I think, is the Psalm of Moses. Uh, but, but nevertheless, these are the... These are the prayer songs of, of the believers. And so if you are running out of things to approach the Lord for, I highly rec- recommend these. And last week what we did is we looked at a contrast between the righteous and the wicked from Proverbs 10. And my purpose there was to engender confidence in the Lord, is to build us up in the doctrine that I want to consider again tonight, the assurance of being in a state of grace. So that's really kind of what the theme, the underlying theme that I want to I, I want to look at over the next couple of weeks. And the assurance of being in a state of grace, the assurance of confidence that we are in a state of salvation or that we're loved by God in Christ is tied to another doctrine, which is very similar, is the perseverance of the saints. And that's what we just saw in Revelation uh, 2 and 3. Jesus is saying to his church, you will persevere because I'll keep you. And that he does encourage us uh, to, to press on and to chase him as it were and we'll overcome and what we see here is even though evil men drive furrows down the backs of Christ's um, people God's children nothing will take us away from the love of God in Christ so that that doctrine of perseverance the, the ones that Christ has purchased he'll keep works to our subjective confidence or, or assurance and or peace so it's for a very pastoral reason I want to look at these kind of a Things And so God is preserving the lives of his people here. Uh, they're righteous. So this is the perseverance of the saints. Or you could in, in, entitle this Psalm 129, the confidence of the believer. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, 
God has not given us a spirit of fear. God the Holy Spirit has cast out the spirit of fear and he's worked in us a spirit of sonship or for a woman, woman, the spirit of daughterhood by which we cry, Abba, God, Father. And he, he's not given us this filial slavish fear. He, he's cast it out and we're to crucify those things. God has given us a spirit of dunamis, is the Greek word, power. And he says, sound mind. And when you look at the confidence of this believer, he says, from my youth up, I've been persecuted. They're running furrows down my back. And it's common among the people of God. And still yet, you see the confidence and the courage of this believer. These kind of psalms are necessary because of the kind of treatment that God's people receive in this world. Namely, the abuse is what we're looking at. That the people who don't belong to the Lord are abusing those who do belong to the Lord. Whether it's physical, spiritual, economical, those kind of things, somehow they're hurting God's people. In the face of that, God's people can have confidence, not in man, uh, but in the Lord. So this is the confidence of the believer. Many times they've persecuted me from my youth up. And the notion is I'm still alive. I'm still here. And in this particular context, he says in the face of all of this opposition, I'm still singing. This, this, when you come to the Psalms, they're, they're written like prayers because they're prayers and they're written like prayer songs because many of them are meant to be sung. In this case, we're in that section of the prayer of ascents, which is meant to be sung in um, corporate worship. And I'll talk about that in, in a little bit. So I, would, I guess I would entitle this the confidence of the believer. And when I see confidence, you know what I mean when I say some people walk around like they're cock of the block, like they own the joint. You know what I mean by that. And um, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the poor man um, requests, he supplicates, he makes many supplications. Oh, I'm sorry, please, I don't know, I don't know, but help me, please. That's the poor man. Whereas the rich man answers harshly. And if you know people... I don't know if I would call them the nouveau riche or the blue bloods. I don't know. People with a boatload of money and usually throw in a dose of good health. People with a boatload of money and a dose of, uh, of good health, their confidence is in their own power. And the way that they treat people around them, in some instances, is they, they, they talk like they own the place. And, and they're exuding confidence. But it's a kernel confidence. It's a con- confidence contingent upon their wealth. Take their money away, and what will happen? Take their health away, and what will happen? Take the health of those that they love away, and what will happen? Their, their confidence goes away. And so what we're looking at is the confidence of a believer, and it's a believer in, in suffering. Remember Job? Job loses everything. He's on an ash heap. And he says, God could kill me, yet I will still serve him. No matter what happens to me, and if you look at Job 1 and 2, God takes all his wealth. He takes all his health. He takes all his children. And what does Job say? I'm going to wait until my change comes. And even after my flesh falls off, with my own eyes, my Redeemer will take a stand upon the earth and I will see him. See the difference? See the difference? It's easy to be confident or courageous if you're you're healthy. It's easy to be confident or courageous when you have a boatload of money and you know where all your rent money is coming from, your food money is coming. You, you know. But it's a more difficult thing to have confidence in the dark, as it were, when you can't see, when you, you have no idea. So we're looking at the confidence of lovers of the Lord. And our confidence is Him decidedly and not in man. 
And so there is a difference between the confidence of the believer, the peace of the believer, again, the peace of an unbeliever, the joy of an unbeliever. We say, look at the confidence ultimately of this person is Godward. It's directing them towards God. What is Psalm 16? At, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore? So what constitutes pleasures for the natural person, the unconverted person, the person without grace, the Christless person? What do they think is joy? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll or something, or, or something like that. But what constitutes the joy of the believer? God. God. I think St. Augustine said, God will give you your joys. He changes your joys from when you were an unbeliever to when you're a believer. Now our, our joys prior were the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin. But our joys in Christ now are God himself. And so this is, this is a Godward psalm that we would be increasingly Godward in our thoughts, in our words, in our affections, in our actions. The world is a difficult place. I, I mean, I, I, I tell us this all the time because I believe it. It's true. You look at it in the Bible. You look at it in the world. And this, this psalm is meant to encourage God's people in the real, in the real world. I remember I watched a man in Presbytery critique another man that was a professor. And he said to him, I'm doing the hard work and you live in your ivory tower. And I just thought, wow, that that was uncalled for. We don't know the difficulties of this man. He was a seminary professor. This is not, he lives in the real world. That man who was a seminary professor lives in the real world with real students, real hardship. And so this is not on vacation confidence with everything is well confidence as a little slice of easiness confidence this is courage when people are running a furrow down your back when you are able to say you may slay me I'm not going to deny my Christ and he'll rescue me and he'll at the end of this the notion is and no one's going to say to you you're blessed in other words God will say to me I'm blessed so God will keep us God will preserve us God will not let our enemies destroy us. And ultimately, on the last day, God in Christ will vindicate us and he will condemn those that have condemned us. Does that make sense? That's all kind of a big picture view of Psalm 129. So as he's saying, they've persecuted me, they've persecuted us, and we're still standing. I may have prayed it in my pastoral prayer. It comes from Romans 8. I This was the first Christian funeral sermon text I ever went to. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. And so when he says, they've run the furrow down my back, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me get ahead of myself. He turns around and teaches the people of God, and they've run the furrow down your back, and we're still standing. We still belong to the Lord. You know that place in Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good? doesn't mean that everything's pleasant. There are some things in life, like people running a, a plow down your back, that are exceedingly painful. But for the believer, they have great instruction. And what the devil means for our harm, and what those who serve the devil mean for our destruction, God means for our edification. We become stronger. We become more Christ-like. The more that we suffer abuse, like our Christ, what happens? We pray, 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 pray. Let me ask you a question. When is your walk with Jesus closer? When everything's great or when people are running a plow down your back because you love Jesus and they don't? When do you pray more fervently? We know the answer. So the general subject is the confidence of the believer in the face of persecution. 
I want to just walk through it chronologically. So we have, I, I didn't read it, but it's part of the, the Hebrew text, a song of ascents. There are 15 psalms within the Psalter that are considered songs of ascents. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a bit. I first want to deal with the business of encouraging ourselves in God's word. And in this case, the business of singing. I mentioned the psalms are prayers and meant to be prayed and meant to be sung. And this one, some prayers are more psalm-like, uh, prayer-like, excuse me, and others are more song-like. Uh, this one was meant to be sung. This one was meant to be sung in corporate worship. And I just want to talk about the basic idea of singing. I, I am not an expert on animals, although I used to watch Wild Kingdom when I was a kid with uh, Marlon Perkins or whatever that guy was. I don't think there are other animals that sing. I think we may, oh, I know birds do their tweeting, but this kind of singing unto the Lord. God has made us originally to glorify God and to enjoy him. In one of the ways, now in Christ, that's been restored, one of the ways that we glorify God and we enjoy God is we sing about God and to God. And God has made us with the faculty um, for verbal expression. We can speak. We can use words. I know they spent, I don't know, $100 million to teach Coco, um, the, the, the ape, how to sign language. I want a banana. I, I know that they did that. <laughs> I think it's a waste of $100 million. God has created human beings to speak. And it's not for nothing that, the, that Jesus is called the eternal logos, the word. We have the gift of verbal, oral expression in keeping with God's purpose for us, we're to use our lips to the glory of God. And just as an aside, for us born again, we're to, we're to use our eyes to the glory of God. And so we're to look at that which pleases and honors God and that which displeases and dishonors God, we're to look away. And we're to use our lips. This is James chapter five. We're, we're told, I think maybe chapter three, don't let bitter words and sweet words come out, come out of the same mouth that are our, Jesus Christ has purchased us with his own blood. And he, he purchased all of us. Our hands, our minds, our, our tongues. And here we have an instance of one believer using this gift of verbal expression, even singing, to bring glory to God, to pray to God, to teach others to pray to God, and to, to, to build himself up in the holy faith. You know that um, many people talk to themselves. I talk to myself all day long because I'm alone all day long. Or I'm intensely private or I'm intensely public. But mainly I live alone preparing sermons and studies and, and so on. So I talk to myself all day long. And a lot of times we have a negative self-talk, depending on if you're Irish or not. So if you have negative self-talk, you, you say like this, well, you're never going to make it and, and this, the sky is falling and what happens when the Chinese take over everything and my Roth IRA is down to nothing, I'll eat acorns, that kind of thing. Well, I'm an, I have that at an expert level. Put all of those things aside. And rather than doing self-talk to discourage yourself, this is a, a, a sermon on courage or confidence. Use your God-given mouth, brain, faculties to encourage yourself. If you can depress yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can encourage yourself in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we do it is start to, to speak, I don't mean in a Pentecostal way, but to speak the truth. 
to speak the truth about God. When he says they're running a plow down my back and I'm still here, it's indicative of the omnipresence of God. Jesus says when he ascends up into heaven, when he gives the Great Commission, and lo, I will what? And lo, I will what? I will be with you to the end of the age. I'm always with you. I'm always with you. This isn't always with you. Our convent, And then we should pray that. We should say that. And, I, and I'm going to go further. God has created us with the ability to speak. God has created us with the ability to sing. And Martin Luther said, next to our salvation in Jesus, he thought music was God's greatest gift. And instrumental kind, and here it's, it's verbal singing kind. Um, I know sometimes people play a song like on a violin and say, what this is, remember Peter and the wolf? And Peter and the wolf, the, the, you hear the music and, you know, the wolf, whatever, the Russian... Well, only if you're telling, they're telling me it's Peter and the Wolf, I know it's Peter and the Wolf. Unless you use words, I have no idea what you're saying. It sounds beautiful, maybe, but I have no idea what's going on. And this is the benefit of, of actually words, singing. Now, I agree with Luther. Um, I don't know if I could make it as bold as Luther said, but singing is a great gift. And I just watched my little grandson, how they are teaching him true religion and they're catechizing him and all of these other things in Baptist churches, not Presbyterian churches. Um, and it's song. They're using song. The kids sang, as I said this morning, they sang uh, 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 number six, the ironic blessing. May God bestow his peace upon you. God is love, First John 4. They're singing this. And then I got back in the car and listened to my little grandson and he's singing that stuff. That's good theology, Bible, being drilled into his little heart and mind through song. There's, I don't know how it works. You may have some scientists that can tell you why songs have such a powerful influence on, on us. And you know this. They do studies on this. The music that, if, if you go somewhere where people are going to be, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, and the, and the people selling you whatever they want to sell you know you're going to be 40 to 60, they play music from the 60s or the 70s. Why? Because they know that's your youth, your formative years, your high school years, your college years, that kind of thing. And it sticks with you. And there's great power. So if you are low and you, are, you, you feel, are feeling defeated, sing the scripture. You may say, well, I have a lousy voice. Hey, welcome to the club. I have a lousy voice. So some of y'all have beautiful voices and I hide behind your beautiful voice. But when I'm alone, man, I let it rip. I just sing out. And it sounds like someone's strangling a cat, but that's okay. But it's encouraging. So when if you are being beleaguered, especially by enemies of Christ, and they hate you because you love Christ, and you're self-conscious about your singing voice, get alone and sing. Sing the truth. And just and if you say, well, what's the melody? I don't know. Make it up. Chant it. You're holy, you're righteous, holy, holy, holy. You're, you're, you're always with me. No one will take, take you away. And then sing that. And this is meant to engender confidence and courage. And as I mentioned, this is part of those 15 series of, of songs of ascent. This was meant to be sung in corporate worship. So not only does singing encourage the people of God, corporate worship encourages the people of God. There were three pilgrim feasts uh, five feasts total, but three pilgrim feasts where all adult males in the Old Testament had to, uh, to stop what they were doing and get aside and come up to Jerusalem and worship God with all the other adult males. And this is one of them. And so 
this is why you have the, the experience of one believer, I'm suffering, but I'm still standing. And he says to the other believers, say, I'm suffering, but you're still standing. Because it's meant to be used corporately. And, if, and you know this is true. Remember, this is, a, this is a psalm of encouragement in the Lord. That the persecutors will not win. That you, will, you are a super overcomer, as Paul says in Christ Jesus. That you will win because Christ wins. That you will be the last man standing, as it were. You won't be taken away from Christ. And you know that this happens. You could come into church. Here's what happens. You wake up on the Lord's Day and you think, oh man, I can't believe it's morning. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, lower than, I'm lower than whatever in Mariana's trench. I can't go to church. I just can't do it. Stop that. Get out of bed. Go to church. Because you're not going to feel any better sitting in bed feeling sorry for yourself. Go to church even if you don't feel like it. And then when you're there, sing your heart out. And then pray that the other people sing their hearts out. And then watch what happens. What happens? When I go to Presbytery, there'll be 50 men singing the Psalms with no music. And boy, howdy. I mean, you just want to charge the hill after that. I know I'm, you know, uh, Marky Melancholy, but after that, I'm not Marky Melancholy. You are just, you're exuding, con- it, it quickens you. And so this is meant to be used in corporate worship. I'm not going to go off into my Sabbath keeping, but it's a benefit of Sabbath keeping, by the way. So there's a singing of songs, a singing of the truth of God. And uh, Christ sang after they, after they took the, the last Passover meal, and he turned it into the first Lord's Supper. They sang a what? They sang a hymn. They sang a psalm. And Christ sang. And then if you read Revelation chapter 5, you've got the four living elders, the, tw- the, the four living creatures, the 24 elders. What are they doing? They're singing. Holy, holy, holy. Beloved, you cannot look at two things at the same time. You can't be downcast about your enemies and look at Christ at the same time. It's not possible. And so, yes, we can discourage ourselves because we're looking at the storm. We can discourage ourselves because we're talking trash to ourselves. Why not sing God's truth that from our youth they persecuted us, but we're still here in Christ. So we see that. Um, I mentioned the pilgrim feasts. Um, all of those feasts are meant to typify uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I, I, I don't want to get too far afield, um, but... The Passover meal, the Passover meal points us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when these men went to the pilgrim feasts, what they were hearing to encourage themselves was the gospel of Jesus in type and shadow. Um, and I'm not, I promise I'm not playing fast and loose. First Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says, we, we enjoy the Passover in Christ. He is our Passover. I, I said every Sunday of my life, I would hear this. Behold the Lamb of God who what? Take away the sins of the world. This is John the Baptist looking at Jesus Christ. But it's a reference to Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. Um, the Passover. Christ is the Passover. So that's ultimately where they're finding their confidence in. And look at verse 1. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. My wife and I were walking through this psalm um, at, at lunchtime after lunch today. We're just kind of catechizing each other from it. We don't know who it is. If you have Spurgeon's commentaries, everything for Spurgeon, if it's not said, uh, this is Asaph or Moses, he makes everything a Psalm of David. It, it very well could be a Psalm of David, but it's not, we're not told uh, who it is specifically. But it really doesn't matter. We, all, we know ultimately at least a great bit about the identity of this person. 
And, and that is to say this, the most important thing, they're believers. This is a believer. Many times they've persecuted me. Many times they've persecuted us as the Israel of God, yet we're still here because our God preserves us. So this is the experience of a believer. You remember Proverbs is written this way. A great bit of many of the Psalms are written this way. The righteous versus the wicked. This is the child of God, the child of light versus the child of darkness. The believer in the Lord, the unbeliever. And this is God, the confidence of those who believe, as opposed to the confidence of those who don't believe. One is carnal, one is spiritual. So when this believer says, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, it teaches us something about the life of a believer in Jesus. It is not possible to be born into this world and to get out of this world without much trouble. It is not possible. I don't care who you are. Um, And let's just apply it to the believer. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. And therefore, everything in this life will be easy. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. It's almost the exact opposite. (laughs) If if you love Christ and know Christ, then God does love you and you are kept and you are preserved, all that we're talking about. But Jesus says, if you love me, in this life, the ones who hated me are going to hate you. And the Apostle Paul says, let's go back to all the churches that we did our missionary endeavors in Acts chapter 14 and encourage the brothers by saying, through many trials and tribulations and hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes when we raise our kids, my parents didn't do it this way. We didn't do it this way. But I know sometimes parents do it this way. Buttercup, whatever you want, everything's gonna, everything's about you, Buttercup. And life is supposed to be easy. And here's your, your, your everything's good, Buttercup. It's everything's great. It's going to be good. That's a lie. That kid's going to be 18, 19, 20, and he's not going to know how to fold his laundry. And the first hard day that comes across the plate, he's going to think you lied to him because you did. And you didn't prepare him for life. And so here the Bible says to the believer, life's real hard. They're persecuting him from when? From the time he was a kiddo up. From the time he was a kiddo up. Um, we raised our kids in the Lord. And I remember my son came to me and it stuck with me. I, I didn't allow him to go to a, a rock concert. And I was um, too forceful in my, uh, my uh, expression to him. I, I just didn't think about it. I just said, no. They're all, they're wicked and sex and drugs and rock and roll. No. And he was respectful. He walked away. And he came back to me later. He said, Dad, you don't know what it's like to be a 17-year-old young man living with the kind of religious views that we have in this life. And he's right. Can I was, when I was 17, I was pagan as a post. I was drinking at the concert. That's why I didn't let him go to the concert. But I didn't have, I didn't have this. So our, our young people that we raise in the Lord, that love the Lord, and they live in an anti-Christ culture, they're, they're suffering. So I, I say that as an older one now at 58, looking back, I wish I would have been a little wiser. We think because we're 50, 60, whatever, that our kids are not suffering. Um, our kids, there's opposition to our children to live for Christ. And so it's normative for the life of a believer from the time they express their faith in Jesus to suffer persecution. We don't know we don't we don't know the exact identity, it's a believer. We don't know the exact identity of the persecutor, but the idea is they're persecuting them for for religious reasons. You love Jesus. 
How difficult is, is it to raise children that are chaste? If, if our children say, I want to remain a virgin until I'm married, they're going to be mocked. They're going to be mocked. They're going to be thought of like, what are you, a goofball? I mean, really? Are you in a time? People, even Christians in the church don't think it's possible. Even Christians in OPC churches don't think it's possible. Right? That's a warfare. That's a suffering. And, and, and the recourse for the believer is to go to the Lord. And then this one believer who suffers the persecution, look at what he says. Let Israel now say, and sometimes I joke, I know there are other churches. They did this at the Baptist church that we went to. And I, I was wondering whether my wife would do it or not. The minister said, okay, students, stand up. And he had a thing written out. Say after me. And you had to say exactly what he said. And then he said, teacher, stand up. And he had a little student, repeat after me. I said, oh, man, you know he's going for the grandparents here. And I'm like, am I going to let this guy <laughs> make me stand up like a puppet and say what he says? I did it. I did I, I didn't want to be the only guy. But this is exactly what he does. This is turn to your neighbor and say, <laughs> which I've always wanted to do. So this one sufferer who has been kept by the Lord turns to the, his fellow Israelites, and he's presuming believing Israelites, and he presupposes that they have the same experience of suffering. Beloved, isn't this true? Sometimes when we suffer, we're think, we think we're the only ones. We think we're the only ones. And it makes our suffering worse. No one has ever had, no one has ever been as poor as I have. No one ever works 70 hour weeks. Give me a break. Both my father and my grandfather make me look like Peter Pan. Tons of people have had way harder lives. We make ourselves more depressed when we think we've been somehow selected out by God to, to suffer especially. But th this believer doesn't do it. He turns to all the other believers and say, you say the very same things because this is your experience. And, and this is a, a solidarity of, of God's people acknowledging the suffering of God's people for living for the Lord Jesus and that he's preserved us. And that, and this is the benefit of corporate worship. This is the benefit of identifying not just with our little band of Christians in the OPC. We should have a big view of the Christian church. People that love Jesus are our brothers and sisters. As they mourn, we mourn. As they rejoice, we rejoice. And, and th this idea of mutually encouraging one another works to our own confidence. It's the business of uh, the communion of saints. And whenever I say that, I always worry that someone who is, um, there was a woman that was visiting and she has neurological, so, some difficulties, and she can't drive anymore. And I'm always worried that that poor woman or fellow is thinking, what about me? I, I can't get out of the house. I'm not speaking. So providentially, if we're prohibited from gathering together, it's different than absenting ourselves. You, you know what I'm saying. And then um, verse 3 the, 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 the particular pain or affliction or suffering is used with ag ag agricultural terms. And, and it's pretty obvious why an Israelite here, in the time that the Psalms were written, let's presuppose from David to Moses, 1,000 to 1,400, would use agricultural figures because they're an agricultural people. You look at the, 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 the Proverbs or the, the, the parables of Jesus. I'm the good shepherd, your sheep, of all of those kind of things. So he uses figures that the people would have readily understood. And here's what the people of God are saying. Our life feels like someone's running a plow down my back. 
because I love the Lord. I know everybody, all Christians, we thought it. My dad used to think that he was Job. We all think we're Job. When my clutch goes out, I think I'm Job. When I bounce a check at the bank, I think I'm Job. That's not Job. That's not Job. Someone running a furrow down your back? They're, they're, run, they're, running, a, they're running a plow and they're down your back. The notion is that this is intense and he says it's gone on from my youth. So this is the difficulty with suffering. We tend to break down depending on the intensity of the suffering and the other thing is the duration of the suffering. If you have something which is intensely painful, sometimes we can't handle it. And then the other thing, and many of us know this, when something won't go away, you don't think you'll break down by a smaller thing. I can make you break down with a smaller thing that won't go away, right? And remember the Apostle Paul? He had a thorn in the flesh that wouldn't go away. And he begged God. He actually begged Jesus, um, take it away. And what did Jesus say? I'm not taking it away. And, and then he said this, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my power is perfected. And what he was saying is the essence of, 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 of Psalm 129. That pain, that suffering, that thorn, that messenger of Satan is going to get you on your knees and drive you back to me. That's why you're going to have joy and peace and hope in the face of your persecutors. I, I want to say this and then I'll probably quit. I was converted to Christ when I was 26 years old. And I met an old man. He was an old man for me at the time. He was a 74-year-old guy. And I went looking for old men to teach me the faith, old Christian men, uh, ministers. Because I thought, well, they know more than me. Um, they know more than a young man. And in particular, they've been through hard, more hard times. And this particular old man through, went through some hard times. I actually sought out two old men, both in their 70s. And I was in my 20s to teach me the faith, to teach me the Bible. And so when they told me, it is well with your soul, Christ will never let go of you. And I knew that they buried their wife, for example, and they still had joy in the Lord, and they still had peace, and they still had hope, and they still had Christ, and Christ still had them. That, 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 that's, that's true, beloved. That's true. When we go through something, whatever our something may be, whether you're young or old. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we go through our hard times so that it would drive us to Jesus Christ so then God is going to take us and what we learn and we're going to turn to our fellow sufferer and we're going to be able to help them. Many years ago, a fellow in the church was teaching something and a widow said to him, you don't know what it's like to be married to a husband I think she was married 60 years and not to have your husband and the, the things. And he tried to say that he did understand. And she got mad at him and said, you don't understand. And he came to me and said, what do you think? I said, you should have said, no, ma'am, I don't understand. You understand what it's like to be shot at in Vietnam. You understand what it's like to be actually wounded. You understand these things, but you don't understand that. So sometimes when God takes us through a particular suffering, a persecution, God's going to use us in that area. Um, some, some of us have wrestled with addiction. Some of us wrestle with loved ones with addiction. Some of us wrestle with melancholy. Some of us wrestle with lots of things. 
And as God preserves us in those things, he uses us and sends us to like sufferers so that we would point them to their only hope in life and death, which is Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.